Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Mic Drop. Uh, busy week. Super busy week. Lots to cover, lots to talk about. Easy stuff like race in America, race in politics, and how uh, the race issue is being used, and more importantly, the double standard that we're having to deal with between Republicans and Democrats. Um, first, a quick housekeeping items. If you could do me a favor, I just invited all of our subscribers. By the way, if you're not subscribing to the show, you ought to do a, do yourself a favor and subscribe. Uh, that way, when I invite everybody and get the show started, you'll get that quick notice. I think probably most of the people in the chat are already subscribers, but if you aren't subscribing, subscribe. It makes it easier. If you're too busy, if you're in the middle of something, you can obviously just dismiss it and not worry about it. But for the most part, uh, building up a subscriber base helps us, and it also helps you know when we're going to be going live on Mic Drop. We got three weeks out of this election. Um, over one million votes have already been cast. We'll talk a little bit about that if we can get to it, because we do have some pretty weighty topics today. But if you're not subscribing, subscribe, and perhaps just as importantly, if you could do me a favor and share on social media that this conversation is happening it helps us build up the community, get some of those better questions in, diversifies the questions set, and helps me think a little bit sharper about uh, approaching campaigns so that I can kind of share my perspectives with you and um, hopefully make for a better experience just all the way around. Also, jump into the queue. Go ahead and get in early. If you've got some quick questions, the ground rules are really simple, really quick, really easy. You can ask about anything, especially campaign-related. Um, if there's a question you feel a little bit intimidated asking because you're wondering if people have explored these issues before, I will let you know when you ask the question, but I will also answer it again because there's a lot of newcomers to the show and we want to make sure that everybody's getting um, the benefit of being part of what we're trying to build here. So with that, let me also uh, mention one other uh, quick dynamic that has uh, emerged in the past couple of days. Uh, I think many and or most of you guys know that a documentary was released on the Lincoln Project on Showtime last Friday night. Five episodes, five one-hour episodes that cover uh, the last 60 days of the campaign when we all converged in Park City in one location, or at least most of us. And it covers, I think, a, a lot of the work that we did. It also covers some of the tension in the group, which is inevitable in most campaigns. And it begins to cover some of the fallout and the demise of the Lincoln Project as we knew it. I would highly recommend it. You're starting to hear a lot more chatter about it online. Um, I'm more than happy to answer any questions that you have, but I also have to be mindful that there are a lot of questions that, fortunately, legally, I can't. Uh, respond to, but I'll do my best because I'm all about being as open as I can. The movie really, folks, speaks for itself. I mean, it's pretty obvious what was what was happening and what happened, and I would strongly, strongly encourage you to watch it. I, um, of course, am too close to know whether it's actually a good storyline or not, but I think for the most part, it does an accurate portrayal of the characters involved. Uh, I am a little bit disappointed, candidly, on the way that it, it ended. The ending, I don't think, necessarily grasps uh, what some of the bigger questions were, but that's probably why I'm not a filmmaker. It's probably why I'm a campaign guy and why I do campaigns and why I want to talk to you about what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, race and the race card and the way it's been used. 
Um, let me. Let, there's no. There's no surprises here, folks. To anybody, that race has is probably the most visceral of all issues in not just American politics, although that is true. It's really a force used in global politics, and it's it's as old as mankind. It's as old as from when we began to discern biological differences between ourselves, and it's as old as when tribes started to gather and notice differences and use those differences as a means of protection. And there's a really strong biological element to that. Okay, and I don't want to spend too much time. I don't want this to be an anthropological class or a sociology class, although sometimes I veer into that that area. Um, as you know, I think that's probably why some of you guys tune in. Um, I, I, I am very interested in those things. I'm very, very interested in identity because they do they do overwhelmingly guide our social activities and our politicization process, and they are huge instruments that we as uh, human organisms use to discern our political decision-making process because they literally dictate how we're going to get along, if we're going to get along, who has power, who does not have power, who's going to die, who's going to live, who's going to get how much money, and who's going to have money taken away from them, who's going to go to war, who's not going to go to war, who gets what rights and who doesn't. From immemorial are a part and parcel of what of, of racial characteristics. We're going to talk about some of those tonight, um, and they are changing, which is really the area of study that I focus the most on. I'm most interested on how those norms and how those mores are changing and have changed over time. Because the American, the American experience has really been defined overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in black and white terms. And that may sound kind of you know, obvious on its face, but that really never occurred to me uh, as a young man until I went from you know, growing up in Southern California in the 80s and 90s, going back to the East Coast. I went to Georgetown for my undergraduate education, was very interested in identity, especially Latino identity, which nobody, absolutely nobody in American academia gave a single damn or care about, especially on the East Coast. And when I wanted to engage in some of these discussions with some of my poli-sci teachers at one of the best universities in the world, especially for politics, there was not a single, there was not a single academic advisor who not only had any expertise, but had any damned interest in what this kid wanted to talk about. Politics was all, racial politics was all about black and white. And those are really the only tools through which we have the capacity to have a discussion on race in any meaningful way. Let me say that again because I believe this to my core. American political observers, political actors, politicians, consultants overwhelmingly lack the capacity to discuss race in any construct other than black and white. Okay, There are gradations of that, and that's what the Latino community really is beginning to teach us and is starting to define. We are a mestizo, as we call it, a mixed race. By definition, people a segment of our Hispanic population where mestizo, which is means mixture, it's mixed. Um, we are a balance between the old world and the new. We're the balance between indigenous and European people. And in many ways, 
that's the hope. I think that that is potentially the hope for what a pluralistic society means. Because by definition, if you are neither of one or neither of the other, but you are both of each, that should uh, that should on paper allow us some reconciliation, some some hope for a roadmap on how we can get beyond the racial racial constructs that have divided us. Now that's been tested especially this week in Los Angeles. And if you're not in, in Los Angeles, it's probably not as detailed an issue, but this has obviously become a national story. If you have not heard this story, let me run through it really quickly because it is, I believe, a generational moment in Latino politics and racial politics in this country. And I'm going to tell you why. There were four people Four Latinos, three elected officials of the Los Angeles City Council who were recorded in a leaked audio tape. They were taped last year in the halls of organized labor. Ron Herrera, the head of the Labor Federation, arguably one of the top three or four labor leaders in the entire country. Organized labor in Los Angeles County is extraordinarily strong one of the strongest drivers in one of the largest states in the country, was seated around a table with at least three politicians that we know of at this time, Councilwoman and President of the Council, Nuri, N-U-R-Y, Nuri Martinez, the first female President of the Council, the first Latina of the Council, and she's from the San Fernando Valley, which if you know, Los Angeles, it's the northern part of the, of, the, of the city of Los Angeles. It used to be the last kind of Republican bastion, sort of white suburbanites. This is where E.T., if any of you guys remember E.T. was filmed, that's those lights in the suburban panacea. Anybody watched Karate Kid, either the old one or the new one, it, they do this great transition with the new Karate Kids on how much uh, you know, the Northridge area uh, has changed um, for in, the, in the 20, 30 years uh, from the original Karate Kid to the last. That's where Karate Kid was centered and framed. So much of kind of classical suburban uh, lifestyle from Hollywood emanates there because the San Fernando Valley is in what's known as the TMZ. If you don't know what the TMZ is, if you think TMZ is just a massive media conglomerate that focuses on entertainment news. Well, one, you'd be right, but TMZ stands for 30-mile zone. The 30-mile zone is the 30 miles surrounding Hollywood, the Hollywood studios, where there are certain tax breaks and certain tax advantages and certain regulatory advantages that the studios are allowed to take advantage of and a certain pay rate within which they have to pay the workers, um, within what's called the TMZ, the 30-mile zone. Outside the TMZ, different rules apply, but inside, that's what TMZ uh, essentially stands for. Okay, But all of this is to say that all of this area has changed over the course of the past 20 or 30 years. It is now predominantly Latino. That's where Nuri Martinez comes from. Incidentally, the San Fernando Valley is the same area, the same place that two other prominent national Latino figures come from. One, my good friend Alex Padilla, a U.S. senator here from California, the other congressman, Tony Cardenas, um, who is, in, in all, by all estimations, going to be making a very significant leadership play in the next, uh, after the midterms are held. Um, all of this 
means that these changes are coming about and a changing Los Angeles has been part of my life, my political uh, trajectory and what I have studied and focused on for many, many decades. All of you guys know all of this. And I'm sorry, it's, um, sorry about the background, but I'm, I'm hoping it's helpful to set the narrative because I do think it is important, at least for understanding Latino politics at this critical moment. And Latino politics and the way we handle race as a Latino community, I think, is going to really be definitive in the way we as Americans handle race and identity uh, for, the next, for the next 20 years in the future. The promise, the hope of the rising Latinos in Los Angeles County and in California was that we would be able to do better than what we did in the past, what we found in the past. Ron Herrera, of course, I've just mentioned, labor leader in the room. Nuri Martinez, two other key figures, Kevin DeLeon. Kevin DeLeon was a city councilman in Los Angeles, ran for mayor. Incidentally, we don't, we, no one's talking about this in the, in the press yet, but this was recorded. These recordings were happening while Kevin DeLeon was running for the mayor of Los Angeles. While he was running for mayor, these racist comments were taped. Of course, they were just being leaked, leaked now. But this was the conversation that a candidate for the mayor of one of the most, if not the most, diverse cities in America was holding uh, a meeting on. The third was another friend of mine named Gil Cedillo, uh, councilman, former state senator, probably the premier advocate for the undocumented, uh, undocumented immigrants in California history. And so what is one of the most fascinating things is you have truly all of the pillars of Latino politics sitting in one room. You've got a woman, a first Latina, L.A. City Council president. You've got Ron Herrera, the head of the Labor Federation, one of the primary political bases of expanding Latino support is organized labor. You have the first Latino Senate pro tem in Kevin DeLeon, who not only was running for mayor and ran for mayor last year, but also ran against Dianne Feinstein in the primary. Some of you guys might remember or may not remember. He was running as the progressive alternative and a generational alternative to Dianne Feinstein two years ago in the primary for U.S. Senate. I'm sorry, four years ago for United States Senate. And then you've got, again, probably the most widely recognized immigrants' rights advocate in the name of Gil Cedillo. All four of these, if not explicitly, then tacitly, engaging in some of the most vile, horrific, disgusting, appalling, racist language I have ever heard uh, from any politician in this country. Not at this moment in time, I'm going to argue, ever, okay? We've had some really horrible, horribly racist politicians. Now, many of them predated recording devices, so I'm not going to speak for that era prior to that. But I never heard, I've never heard statements from George Wallace that came out of Nuri Martinez's mouth. I've never heard statements coming. I'm going to talk about in just a minute coming out of his mouth. I've never heard Donald Trump use some of these words. Okay? All very important and extremely important that we recognized just how bad this was and this is because it's bad. Okay, it's bad. And I want to make sure that everybody knows 
that um, we're going to talk about Latino racism in just a second. I'm very honest and forthright about this. I, I, I tweeted up a tweet storm on this yesterday. But I also, um, you know, a bunch of people jumped in kind of late and were misconstruing what I was saying to say that, you know, Joe Biden, because I, I mentioned when Joe Biden weighed in. Remember, the president of the United States yesterday weighed in on three Latino office holders asking them or suggesting that they should resign. That's significant in and of itself. I don't need to say anything else beyond that, and I didn't. But some of the criticism that came in was, well, he's right and they should. And I'm like, of course he's right. Of course they should. That's what I said, not just all day today, but all day yesterday. And maybe I was a little bit too uh, direct with some of this stuff. But as many of you guys know and who follow, I tend to be a little bit direct. And I don't have a real tolerance either, by the way, for people who jump in midway for conversations and start start Im- imposing their own you know, sense of what I'm saying, even though it takes one half of one, mi- you know, one second to look what, at, at what the conversation was and where it's going. Anyway, I don't want to beat a dead horse. You guys all know that I love my followers. I go through purges regularly and cut people out. So anybody who's listening, anybody who follows me on Twitter, you guys have all made the cut. I'm not worried about you guys, but but I think you guys have seen this uh, challenges on my on my Twitter feed in the past. So, bottom line is, uh, the President of the United States, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, today weighed in and asked them to resign. But most importantly, Alex Padilla was the first major politician to suggest that they should resign. It was followed very quickly by two very significant Latino organizations nationally and in the state, National Association of Latino Elected Officials. My dear friend of 25, 30 years, Arturo Vargas, is the executive director, made the decision to also ask for their resignations. And then another group that I work and volunteer with is a group called Hispanas Organized for Political Equality, HOPE. This is the premier Hispanic women's organization, which has done phenomenal, phenomenal work over the past 30 years since I've known Helen uh, in this capacity, really changed the gender balance of women in this state and probably should be doing this work nationally. Just can't say enough about hope. Both asked for the resignation of these members. Now, that to me is is as consequential as the, the blatant, ugly racism. Let's just let, let's be real clear and real honest about this. Racism is not the province of one of any one race or ethnicity. I, I believe because of our biological construct that there are a lot of us, a lot of human beings who have racial dispositions about others, as it's called, an otherism. And and I, do, I a lot of that is obviously a social construct, but I also believe a lot of it is a biological construct. I think that we are just naturally constituted to look for others uh, to be different for our own safety and security, at least from you know back in the prime, you know uh, in our in our in our in our nascent days as a species. And our challenge has always been to overcome that, to be enlightened, and to recognize that that is that is a flawed way of viewing humanity. And if we continue to do that. We don't rise above that very base element of who we are as human beings. That's the beauty. That's the promise. That's the hope of being a human being. That's what civilization is. And that's our challenge. All of our challenge is to, is to, is to consciously, one, look beyond that, but two, and I believe this is very important, hold each other accountable at that same basic standard. It's one, of the, it's one of the great laments I have about the Republican Party is I believed in the universality 
of our founding documents. They're very important to me. It's why I'm a big, big believer, big student of Frederick Douglass, a big, huge student of Thaddeus Stevens, a big, big fan, obviously, of Abraham Lincoln, some of the founders of not just the Republican Party, but, but the abolitionist movement. These thinkers who were challenging the racial construct of the day and forcing a reckoning documents who were designed and written to be universal to say that all of us, A-L-L, all of us are endowed with uh, certain inalienable rights by our truth was never realized, that Jefferson was a slave owner, the same man who wrote these words owned slaves, that most of the founders were slavers and practiced in this horrible institution. And our challenge has always been from that moment on, from that moment on, from the, from the moment of our declaration is to continually work to build a better, more perfect union. And there, there's, there's challenges as to whether or not we not only have done that and done that well, I believe that we have. I believe that we are a nation born of original sin. I think that we need to be honest in addressing that because we are all human beings and we are all fallen. But the goal of our country, of our nation, of our character, what makes Americans not unique, but hopefully more aspirational, certainly than other nations, is that our founding documents are the first to be universal in nature and say that regardless of your background, we are all capable of being this. And the challenge for this moment in time is do we really believe that? And I don't believe that the Republican Party believes that anymore. I genuinely believe that it did when I joined it. I definitely believed that uh, during the civil rights struggle, I genuinely believe that it was the case when Republicans created a party to eliminate slavery. I, I firmly, foundationally believe that the Republican Party was the original Black Lives Matter movement. I don't believe for a moment that Abraham Lincoln would have had a problem saying Black Lives Matter. He, I mean, I, of course he did. Of course, that was the purpose of the Republican Party. That clearly has changed. That is no longer. The, and the reason I know that is because just look no further than, than Senator Tuberville of Alabama, the speech that he gave where he is basically saying that all of these criminals want reparations because they want money to go to the criminals. I mean, I can't think of many things more, think of anything more horrific in terms of a throwback to the days of slavers and slavery than to say the criminals that he's talking about are, of course, black people that want reparations so that they can get money for being because they're criminals. Money beca literally because they are criminals. This is some dark stuff. That, 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 that has always been in the deep recesses of our country. It has never gone away. This struggle has never been easy, ever, ever. Not from the first moment when, we, when our founders, white, you know, male, property-owning, straight founders signed that declaration and created our current constitution 
Never since that moment has it been easy. It has always been difficult. And it's going to always be difficult because the goal here, the goal as a country, the goal is to continually be more expansive and hopefully use these documents, these founding documents, to override some of the more primal biological drives of our human nature, which is to find differences, to be fearful of one another, to take arms with one another, to seek power over one another, to dominate over one another. This is our, this is our goal. It is our, in many ways, I, I want to say our birthright, at least those documents are, but the birthright of our founding documents are, are no different, no dissimilar than the birthright in the founding of the truth of our country. And the truth of our country is we were slavers, that we were practitioners deep, deep into modern history, perhaps deeper than most of the civilized world, and requiring the most bloody civil war, the most bloody war in our history to extract ourselves from that institution. It took the death of the most Americans of any war to finally bring that to a, an end. And, and, and that, that even did not solve it, right? Many, many argue, there's, there's emergent arguments, again, that we are still, we, because of Reconstruction, because we never drove this slaver mentality from Congress, that we are still very much a part of the Civil War. We never, we never finished our Civil War. Now, of course, I got off topic the way that I do, but I, I want to I, I take a moment to explain some of the cultural mindset in Latin America, because the story of Latin America, of course, is one of conquest. It's one of do domination by Europeans. And, and, and whites, Europeans, came and found indigenous people, of course, and immediately saw a bounty of resources, natural resources, to be exploited. And the natural way to exploit resources at that time, pre-industrial revolution, was uh, in large part through, through, through the slave trade uh, to, to, to force people to, to, to use them as, as subjugated servants to extract resources. Now, there's a complicated history here, of course. The Europeans brought with them smallpox and other contagious diseases, which wiped out enormous numbers of the population. There was uh, the, the Catholic Church. Christianity decides to evangelize by the sword of the cross, right? To subjugate people into a life of servitude and establish a white supremacist structure. That's, that's the history. But biology being what it is, there was a lot of intermingling <laughs> with a lot of Spanish men and indigenous women birthed a new nation, a mestizo race, a mixed race. And what happened was not, there wasn't a you know, complete, fairly balanced mixing of races. That's not the way this works. There were indigenous populations that persisted for long periods of time that remain with stronger indigenous features, that, that remain with darker skin. Uh, anybody who's traveled throughout Latin America knows different regions and has seen this kind of caste system. If you go to Mexico City today, you will see that the wealthy, the elite, the educated, the leaders of business, the leaders of government are very, very light-skinned. 
And you will see that often those that are suffering from extreme poverty, especially in rural areas, are very dark-skinned. This is colorism, classism, okay? Again, apologize for kind of running through a lot of this, but my point here is to say and suggest that this is not particular to the United States of America. This is very pronounced throughout Latin America, and I can speak more specifically to my own Mexican-American culture. This is... It's not even a secret. It's it's wide out in the open. Pew Research did a study in 2021 where over half of American Hispanics said that they had heard racist comments from their own family members and friends about either other Hispanics or other people. That's over half. Over half. Now I haven't I haven't researched beyond Hispanic attitudes, but I, I bet it's not as high. With whites, and I, I, I'm not even sure it's that high with, with blacks, African-Americans. Again, the, the question, if the question is external, like I've heard racist comments or remarks from other people about me, I'm sure it's much higher amongst blacks. But the question was, have you heard your own friends and your own family making racist remarks about people? I, I'm willing to say it's highest amongst Latinos. And that begs a question as to as to why. And a lot of it, I think, again, is found in that little nugget of of being mestizo, of being mixed, of finding gradations. When those gradations in a mixed community, in a mixed society, become all the more important, those differences become more important. It's not just black and white. We know what black looks like in America. Right there's obviously there's anecdotal differences and there are people that have lighter skinned and it goes back to to slavers, you know, um, um, uh, uh, um, being involved with their slaves. It, it can go back to uh, uh, racial intermixing uh, after the 1950s and 60s, um, because prior to that it was essentially illegal in most, if not all, states. I mean, it it, it did exist in some northern states, but it was so hard to manage that most of the the relations between the races were between a slave owning male and his female slave and there, it, you know we're not gonna, we're not going to get into into anything beyond that as to the the coercive elements of that i mean they're horrific they're horrific right that's for a podcast for another day but my point is simply this america in many ways has had this very basic understanding of race relations because it's either black or it's white. It's either black or it's white. And the hierarchy, the hierarchy of that has allowed kind of this oppression ladder, if you will, to say at the very top, the most oppressed, the most, the most dominant, excuse me, in society is the straight white male. And it's been that way for 250 years. At the very bottom are African-American females especially lesbians, right? And you can go up the ladder from there. But white women have always had a superior status than any men of color. It's why white women are so often the protectors of the system. It's because as much as they don't like this male-dominated society, they're certainly not going to give up that power to people who are non-white, and that explains a lot of the female white Trump vote. I'm convinced of that. I'm not saying all of it, but there, to, to not to say to dismiss that and say that that doesn't exist is just it's absurd. Of course, it does. 
course it does. And so with Latin American cultures, this difference, this range, becomes pr pr profoundly important. And what you heard, and not that anybody has listened to these audio tapes, but if you had, what you heard was, I thought most, you know, obviously the, the, the most disgusting elements were the, were the comments that Nuri Martinez leaves for the black son, who was three years old, by the way, at the time of the recording, of two uh, gay white men had adopted an African-American son, and she uses a, a horrible reference. I've, I've probably gotten, I would say, half a dozen calls today saying that that term that she used is a term of endearment. And, and I'm not going to say it's not, but not in that context, okay? It's not. And I, I literally had to scream at a, a friend of mine, a very prominent U.S. federal official, by the way, saying, stop it, stop it. You, you do not make excuses for it. Do not rationalize it. The context within this was used was horrific, and we're going to acknowledge it as a community, or at least I'm going to start publicly saying it, because it's indefensible, and it should be. And one of the beauties of what happened here, one of the beauties that happened here in this discussion, this horrible, ugly, painful discussion about race and the, and the awful recognition that horrible racism exists in the Latino community, especially with Latino politicians, was the fact that Latinos policed their own. Now, the, it is Latino organizations. It is the highest, most powerful Latino in the state. And it was Latino activists in the L.A. City Council chambers that led and have led the push for the resignation of, quote unquote, their own representatives, their own members, saying this is intolerable. This is completely inappropriate. Contrast that with Tuberville. Contrast that with Trump. Now, that's not to say all whites haven't you know, called for their resignation. Obviously, obviously they have. And there's, uh, the, the differentiation becomes this partisan element, right? It's white Republicans. White Republicans who aren't saying this has crossed the line, this is not acceptable behavior, this is grounds for removal. We could talk about Herschel Walker and his hypocrisy and his actions and his mental state. You know, also, too, and those, those, by the way, those are important even to this discussion, even though they aren't part of the racial element. I think they get more interesting, they get more nuanced, they get more rich and complex because Herschel Walker is a black man. For sure they do. But the Republican Party really does not have any standard for its candidates. Any at this point. And, and uh, that, that, that understanding that, that base tribal element is really, really, really important to understanding racial politics. Because, and I have seen this in all 30 years of my time in the Republican Party, as a, as a Latino, as a Hispanic man with a Hispanic surname, the amount of times that I was put up in front of audiences, put up in front of reporters, put up in front of the media, more, you know, willingly, willingly, that's my admonition here, it's my contrition, to start saying that's not, this is not racism. This is not racism. That's the power of the candidacy of a Herschel Walker. Because no matter what Herschel Walker does, 
no matter how mentally insane he is, no matter how many abortions he's had, no matter how many kids he's dumped and abandoned, his blackness, his blackness allows white racism to find some excuse and rationale for its existence. And he's willing to play that role. He's willing to play the minstrel because of what he gets out of it. Now, that does not mean that you cannot have, it does not mean that you cannot have conservatives of color, if you will. You can't, you can absolutely have black conservatives. I think some of the greatest political minds in our country's history have been black conservatives. Uh, I, you can absolutely have Latino conservative. I, I am Latino conservative. I know my conservative beliefs. I'm not a member, of, of a full card carrying member of the Republican Party as it is today because I don't think it's a conservative party in large part. But you can absolutely have without it being without it being a a um, you know a facade. Now the Republican Party has devolved into something performative. So it it, it, it that that is that is overwhelmingly what it is today. Like where there were great black thinkers, I think that they have largely been replaced. The Thomas Souls, even though he's still writing as a conservative, is still you know has been replaced by the Diamonds and Silks. They have been replaced by the Herschel Walkers, because the, by the Kanye Wests, because they're not pr- 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 promulgating conservative beliefs. They're saying that my blackness gives you cover and rationale for what it is that you do. And the implicit agreement is whatever you do, we will back you unconditionally to just don't leave us because this gives us cover. You give us cover and we will we will we will reward you with whatever else it is that you seek, including running for office and clearing the field and backing you, even though we know we know that you're not qualified for this office. We know how flawed a candidate you are. For Diamond and Silk, we'll make you funny. We'll make you money, rather. Funny money, right? We'll, we'll, we'll allow you to be minstrels and make fools of yourself and reward you and shower you with money and fame and notoriety if you're willing to dance for the audience. Kanye, of course, is just mentally ill. In a in a different way than Herschel Walker is right. Herschel, you know, at least a part of it is, is from concussions. But but Kanye is genuinely suffering from a, a grave grave illness. But but that those are the thinkers of the Republican Party. The Democrats hold themselves to a different standard, and I'm not even going to suggest that it's a more virtuous party. Okay, it may be, it may not be. I don't want to debate that. I'm happy to hear your questions about it. But I'm, I'm not a big believer that political parties are virtuous entities. I don't believe that. I believe that they are vehicles to carry ideas through our political systems. I don't think there's anything virtuous about the Democratic Party. It's a better better alternative, undeniably, than the Republican Party, which is why I'm supporting it right now, which is why I will be voting for Democrats. But there's nothing inherently virtuous about the Democratic Party. It's a party. okay, And it changes over time, and it will continue to change over time. It will adjust. It will recreate itself. It will change in the same way that the Republican Party was the party of abolition. The same way that the Republican Party was the first Black Lives Matter movement, the the Democratic Party was the bastion of the Southern Dixiecrat. It was the party of the slaver. Democrats were the party of the oppressed. Uh, I'm sorry, of the oppressor. Okay, now that changes. And, And those histories... 
those histories change and parties can change. So argument is basically there's nothing virtuous about the Democratic Party. So why is it behaving the way that it is? And the argument I would posit is this. Given any one particular moment in time, at least in the post-World War II era, the political parties, either one of them represents the dominant cultural zeitgeist of the era. And up until Trump, that party, I would suggest that party was the Republican Party. I believe that. I believe that. The culture wars overwhelmingly favored the Republican Party. And the Democratic Party was doing what it has done since the Civil Rights Movement, which was push the envelope and challenge that. Challenge that culture. Pushing especially for LGBTQ rights. Right? Pushing, pushing very strenuously for that. All, being the party, as Johnson said in signing the 64 Civil Rights Act, well, we wrote off the South for a generation. It, no, Johnson, you signed off the, the, the South for three generations, and, and probably longer. Right? That's how deeply, deeply ingrained race is. And that's what Johnson did, was he brought the Democratic Party and said, come hell or high water, even if we have to write off 150 electoral votes, we will stand for a better understanding, a more perfect union, a more singular, strengthened commitment to our founding documents. That is what we will do. And that is where the Democratic Party largely is. Now, We've talked about some of those challenges demographically, especially with this rightward shift with Hispanics and with black men that are leaving the Democratic Party. A lot of new data out today, by the way, a lot of new data out showing this recalibration. I'm really fascinated, by the way, to see how this all turns out. Even me, who's been watching this very closely for 30 years, the, the Democratic establishment is still saying there's no problem here. There is no problem here. Most of their data is showing a kind of marginal to significant problem. And most of the public-facing data is saying, this has been transformative. It's really, really a big problem. So we'll see who's right. My guess is it'll probably be mixed, and everybody will go into their respective corners and fight about it. But the bigger point is this. America is no longer going to be a simply black and white country the way it has been for 250 years. And everything that I have been talking about and rambling on about is going to clash in the middle. It's going to be this culture, this Latin American culture that has always looked towards gradations and found other objects to vilify people with, especially their own, by the way. Part of being a conquered people, it's not particular to Mexicans, it's not particular to Latinos, it's particular to every culture that was part of the conquest. The mindset of a conquered people is, is profoundly different than the oppressor than the conqueror, profoundly. And in few instances have we seen the yoke of oppression overthrown and that cultural change take effect in rapid space and time. We saw it in South Africa with the end of apartheid. We saw it in India with the rise of revolution under Gandhi, throwing off the oppressive, oppressive English uh, conqueror we, we, we've seen it in, in Mexico and through Central America, getting rid of the French. We are going to see America change its cultural perceptive race within the period of li the lifetime of most of the people on this call. I think that's extraordinary. I think that's significant.
But what you're going to see in the interim is exactly what we saw play out in the last 48 hours. You're going to see white politicians continually double down into a white grievance politics and believe that it is acceptable because their base finds it acceptable. And not only do they find it acceptable, they're going to demand it. They're demanding it because they're shrinking as a portion of the population and they're shrinking as a portion of the electorate. And that shrinking, to see people shrinking in size, significant, and power, it should not be surprising that they are beginning to behave like an aggrieved racial minority. I'm going to say something controversial, but I believe it. Whites, not all, but an increasing number, whites are beginning to behave the same way they were critical of blacks behaving pre-1970. It's a grievance form of politics. It's people who are increasingly looking for state and federal governments to help them out financially and give them advantage because they feel oppressed. If you ask white people, polls have been done on this. I think it was Pew who also did this. A lot of white males believe that they are genuinely the most aggrieved demographic in America. They're the most under attack. And it's not particularly subtle. You've probably experienced this in your own family, with your own friends, with your own colleagues talking about this. That, that sentiment is going to get stronger, folks, a lot stronger in the next 20 years. And at the same time, you have this emergent block of Hispanics. Because keep in mind, the African-American population is not growing in number. The percentage of the African-American population sits at about 11 to 13 percent. That's essentially what it has been since the 1920s. Largely geographically isolated. Black Americans have never, never posed a numerical threat to white America. And as long as that has never been the case, there's no reason, there's never been a reason why white Americans have ever had to be compelled to actually change the systems of oppression, the educational establishment, the prison establishment, the economic system. All of these systems that were designed, literally created, during a system of white supremacy, of white ownership of black people. You can't just free people and be like, oh, okay, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We'll see you, you know, by the end of your lifetime, you know, matching our performance, matching our, our economic levels, matching our educational attainment levels after we've broken up your families for, for centuries, after we bred your women and sold your children and left you with, with no you know, no, no education to, to become a, a productive part of it. In fact, we're going to put you back into indentured servitude by making you a sharecropper, right? All, the, the, as long as there was never a numeric threat to whiteness in America, we were going to preserve and, pretain, not pr and, and maintain not only the system, but the construct within which we viewed race. We were never going to change anything systemically because it was never a threat, now enter Hispanics, enter the Hispanic community, the rise of the Latino, where we are dramatically, exponentially starting to, to show up in places like Wisconsin, where there's more Latinos now, not just population-wise, there's considerably more Latino population than African-American in Wisconsin, but more voters. Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Ohio, 
all of these places that are now seeing very rapid, Virginia, very rapid explosions of Hispanics. And when the, the local hardware store turns into a taqueria or a quinceanera shop and, and Joe's hardware is now, you know, La Fiesta restaurant, those changes start to create a discomfort. And that discomfort manifests itself in the only way that America knows how to talk about race, which is through a black and white, I'm sorry, black and, black and white lens. There's far, far more nuance. And what we saw on ugly racist display with Latinos in Los Angeles was an attack on that nuance. Yes, there were attacks on blacks. There were attacks on Armenians. There were attacks on Jews. There were attacks on gays. All of, I mean, boy, they, they went after everybody. Nuri went after everybody, really. And everybody else was complicit. The men were just sitting there kind of nodding and making a couple of jokes around it. It was Nuri who was really leaning into this deep, visceral, ugly otherism, racism, hatred, right? For pure political power. Remember, this discussion was about redistricting. It was about diluting black votes to get more Latino seats. And don't think for a freaking minute that this was about the Latino community. It wasn't. It was about them building a bigger majority on the city council. That's all they cared about. That's all they cared about. This is about Latinos becoming everything that they claimed that they despised. They became the power. They became the dominant culture in L.A. and started behaving exactly like what they were critical of. And this is one of the great ironic parts of this story. And I, I love this part because it's so fucking human. Excuse my language. It's such a Greek tragedy. Most of these three, at least three out of the four of them, I think probably all four of them, got involved politically for the first time during the Prop 187 campaign. The Prop 187 campaign was an anti-illegal immigration measure that was on the ballot in California. They got involved in politics because they were fighting against whites pushing out That's why they got involved to do to be better than that. This out yesterday. The great irony is that these political careers, these political lives, ninety-seven, and a commitment, a promise to do better and be better, and engender a more pluralistic, bi or multiracial, multiethnic society, was probably the worst practitioner of racism I've seen in my entire life. Man, if that doesn't say everything that we need to know about it, I don't know what does. I've been rambling on a little bit, Melissa. I'm going to bring you up uh, to go ahead and ask a question. Well, you know, I I was born and raised Thanks in for Los Angeles. Jumping up into the queue. Yeah, and uh, I'm old enough to remember the term Chicano. <laughs> I mean, I don't really yeah. hear that anymore. But at a time, that was like an emerging term for, uh, I would say, Latinos in the 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 city. I grew up uh, in a very upper class neighborhood of Sherman Oaks, and I remember when I went to Van Nuys Junior High. It was the first time I really saw or met or intermixed with people uh, of, uh-huh. of Latino. That's the first time, because in Sherman Oaks Elementary School, it was all white with two Asians. 
that was basically the demographic. But, you know, at first it was very different, but we all seemed to yeah. go along. And through my lifetime, right. we never this, really... This is important for I people. Wait, 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 wait. I work in the home Go ahead. I want to ask you a go quick ahead. question just for, 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 for our listeners. This is really important. Tell people oh, how far, for people that are not from Southern California, tell people how far away Sherman Oaks is from Van Nuys. It's next door. It's next door. <laughs> and, and, and you never saw, yeah. and you never saw Latinos from an Oaks. But they're in my, in my, in your, yeah, well, but the minute I went yeah, Sherman, Sherman Oaks is a wealthy, you know, largely Jewish community. A lot of Asian Pacific Islanders, white, it's a white community, but, but, yeah, but we're Jewish. yeah, it's a Jewish, it's a very Jewish community. Now you, you never saw Latinos. I mean, you do now a little bit more because we're sort of everywhere, but growing up Van Nuys is literally next door. It's like the town a couple yeah. miles over. It's like right there. Yeah. Van Nuys and Boulevard. Van Nuys Boulevard is where you would see a, a lot of Latino young people, right? So that's how segregated I mean, and different California is. But as young people, that was very normal. It was normal. We, extremely we normal. Lived in, we lived in kind of – until. go ahead. Go ahead. I'm cutting you off. It was until, you know, we had buses. That we, I lived high up on a hill near a street called Mulholland Drive. The buses would come up. And then we went to Van Nuys Junior High. And when I went to Van Nuys Junior High, it was like, oh, there's, there, there's Latinos. But – the thing was, is that some people had fear or they were tough or they were this. But then within a very short period of time, from like seventh to eighth grade, everything kind of homogenized. I never really saw uh, Latinos to me or my friends. We had groups, girl groups, right? When you're in cliques that have Latinos, Latino, uh, people of Latino culture in the group. Um, but there was definitely a socioeconomic difference between those that group of people in Van Nuys and the group of people that we were in. The only thing that I can say is that I, I'm obviously a grandchild of people that came, you know, through Ellis Island, New York. They they're not really part of uh, the American culture in the quintessential sense. And the only thing I noticed is that Latinos in my life have progressed and remind me a lot of like young Jewish people where their parents came out and they were more peasants-like or, and then the second generation, they became doctors, lawyers, you know? I mean, in Los Angeles, the people that I work with have master's degrees of Latino descent. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, not, it's not the same what people think in other parts of the country. We had a mayor, okay? Of Latino descent. It wasn't, we voted for him. He was a good guy, you know? He's like, it was more like, it was a different time maybe, but, you know, today it's like, I don't see now in my life living in, you know, area near Beverly Hills, there are people of all descents. I mean, the biggest shock I ever had was when I lived in New York and I met my first Cubans and Puerto Ricans. And it was like, Whoa, these people are not exactly like right. the, the Mexicans and Salvadorians in yeah. California. Yeah. They were tough. Yeah. And there's more Castilian in them. But, you know, the only thing I, I, 
I often say to myself is, you know, when you figure out where people come from and they come from mostly Central America, some South America, you know, they tend to make mistakes like they did in Venezuela. And they tend to go for someone to be, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but to be caring for them. And they end up in some areas like Colombia, Venezuela, with the wrong guys. And they ne- and then they end up being persecuted. And, ha- you know, because I don't really know how, how, some it, how it happens, but maybe culturally, why, why some Latinos, and I don't know any, where I am at, I don't know a single Latino that is racist against African-Americans. Yeah. Some of them, most of them are married to African-Americans and, or, or a Latino that would ever vote for Trump. But there are some, and maybe it's kind of like a throwback to a feeling of how and why they vote for certain people. Maybe I don't yeah. know, and maybe I sound racist. No, no, no. I, I, let me, yeah, look, you're, you're hitting on a couple of really important topics, and let me kind of explore some of them because okay. th- there's a, one of the challenging things that we're going to have to deal with kind of going forward as – because remember, as much as people are talking about the Latino vote now, wait till after the, the midterms, okay? Because the, midter- the midterms oh. are going to determine obviously everything, and Latinos are going to determine probably six – of the most competitive Senate seats, which are all the, the six we're all watching, and probably 20 of the House seats, okay? And there's going to be a lot of, lot of uh, data flying back and forth of did we go right, did we go wrong. Um, I've obviously got my very strong suspicions. You guys have known what I've been saying. I'm going to double down on it because I think I'm absolutely right. I think the Democrats are finally figuring it out. But here's, here's, here's the difference. And everyone's going to keep saying Latinos are not monolithic and they're so different. It doesn't matter. And, and they're all national. Everybody wants to, everybody immediately goes back to country of origin. Well, some are Nicaraguan, some are Colombian, uh-huh. some are Venezuelan, some are Mexican, some are Puerto Rican, some are Cuban. Yeah. Okay. That's true. And are there differences? Yeah. Yeah, sure. There are, but that's not where the really big differentiation is. So hey, I'm going to tell you exactly where the two largest, most significant differentiations are. They're not country of origin. They're not even, you know, they're not even English or Spanish dominant. The, the main differentiation is the generational differences, how far removed you are from the immigrant experience. First generation immigrants tend to be the most culturally conservative. Okay. By the second and third generations, that wanes and it does exactly what you were just saying. They start to vote more like the Jews, Greeks, Italians, Poles around the turn of the last century at Ellis Island. There starts to be this Mm -hmm. assimilative effect. Now, this is just starting to hit the country, so the Democrats are freaking out because they're like, wait a second, this is our vote. These are our voters. What is happening? What is happening is what has happened from time immemorial over this country's history. Is Hispanic immigrants are starting to have their children and their grandchildren take on the attributes of the mainstream electorate. They're becoming more Republican because the rest of the country looks more Republican. That's the first. And the second, this is really critically important. And and that is Latinos are starting to mirror the education divide that is splitting the rest of the country too. Democrats are overwhelmingly consolidating college educated voters Right. The, the, the Democratic Party is becoming a college educated, largely white party. 
and it's it's starting not starting it's it's almost completely ensconced in that mentality which is why that's where the wokeism stuff comes in these 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 these, these solutions to race which are not re- representative of the broader minority communities that they're trying to answer start to get caught up in this sort of elitist air that's where this whole latinx debate comes from is that's a, that, that, that's a white that. progressive solution Ugh. to a problem that doesn't really exist in the Latino community, or at least that's not a solution to what the problems are that exist. But what is happening in the Republican Party is we are seeing non-college educated whites consolidating under the Republican banner. And guess what? Most Hispanics identify as white. In fact, racially, we are white. We are a different ethnicity. Well, when they ask, I work for uh, I work for uh-huh. Apple, and the hair and the questions that are asked at Apple or Disney. Or I work in the film industry. Is they'll say, "Are you white? Are you Latino?" Because they consider Latino as white, but they'll differentiate it. Are you uh, like they'll say, "Are are you, are you Latino? Are you Caucasian? Are you Caucasian or are you Latino white or white white?" And they'll actually seg- segregate the two pieces. Yeah. And I can see how my friends who are Latino, they don't think of themselves as, I can't explain it. They don't think of themselves as brown. Uh, let me ask you, let me ask you, you know, some questions. Did they go to college? Yeah, yes. of course they did. I knew the answer before I asked. Went to UCLA. Huh? Right. Yeah. Right. They, they they're very, UCLA. yeah, they're very assimilated. And, and they're very they're, yeah they're very they're very educated they're very economically mobile they're probably upper middle class huh? if they're living on the west side or on that side of the valley like the, these are huh? not the stereotypical person they're not worried about immigration raids coming to their house they view themselves as no. white and they're voting like their college educated professional well-to-do peers which are overwhelmingly Democrats. Yeah, that's who that's I your, exactly. With. So when we say Latino, that's that's why I always fight with reporters about farm worker bills and issues for the undocumented driver's license. This is because these are these ridiculous, outdated stereotypes of who Latinos are. Those Latinos are just you know they're doctors like your friends. They work in the film industry. They're political consultants. They went to Georgetown. They went to UCLA. Okay, now not all of us, but if I look at it mathematically, we are still the largest segment of the non-college educated voter because we are still only two degrees, most of us, the second generation removed from the immigrant experience. And we shouldn't be surprised that people are voting that way. That's going to change generationally. That's why I said that. Is we vote we vote based off of our generation. But who is voting? What part of the, I mean, when you say that the country of origin, if you go to Koreatown, you could have a papoose on one side of the street and a guamateca on the other side of the street. You know what I mean? It's like, who is voting Republican? Maybe because I'm in Los Angeles and it's overwhelmingly Latino is Democratic. Well, well, let me say this. In California, in L.A., nobody is. Okay, in LA nobody is, and in California really nobody is. But here's why. Let me tell you why. You're probably not going to like the answer, but I was, I was speaking to one of the senior advisors to Gavin Newsom about this yesterday. 
the the reason uh-huh. the reason why California is proving an exception and Latinos don't vote for Republicans is because there's no Latino middle class. You're either really poor, or you're like your friends on on in Sherman Oaks or the Beverly Hills area. Really, we're rich. really rich, and and both of those groups, the really rich and the really poor, vote for Democrats because the rich, the rich in America have the luxury of not focusing on economics, so they're motivated by cultural issues. They care about being woke. They care about environmentalism. They care about LGBTQ issues. They care about legalizing marijuana. They care about these issues, okay? And I'm not saying they're bad. They're important issues, but that's what, that's what wealth allows you. It gives you the luxury to focus on cultural issues primarily. If you're poor, you need Democrats because Democrats are going to give you the, the, what you need, they're going to support the government safety net. It's the middle class. If you look at, there's no middle class in California anymore. There is no middle class. It's gone. So what do you, what do you do? What do you do with the rest of the country with all the middle class Latinos? I mean, they're going, what they're voting, are they're, they're, they're voting Republican because Republicans believe in blue collar industries they believe in the old industries like manufacturing energy uh construction agriculture mining forestry fishing these are all the industries that democrats hate that they're trying to get rid of. California has been trying to get rid of all of those industries for the past 20, 30 years. And you know what? They've done a really, really, really good job. I had lunch last week with the head of the California Manufacturing and Trade Association. This is the, this is the guy who represents all the largest manufacturers in California. And by the way, California, because it's so big, it's the largest manufacturing state in the country. But those numbers have have gone down decidedly. And as they've gone down, you know what else has gone down? The middle class. So unless you work in a high-tech, highly skilled trade, you cannot afford to live in California. You can't. And so the middle class has to have three or four jobs. Um, that's not a middle class. It's a, it's a, it's a lower – it's a poverty class now in California. You know, you're you're work you're driving Uber and you're working as a barista and you're you're hopefully trying to pick up a couple janitorial jobs trying to make it. So you live in Pacoima yeah, with another family. But right, with but, but here's the thing. It's kind of like voting against your own best interest. That's I understand what you're saying. It's kind of like so you think Republicans are gonna do for you what nobody else has done for you like out of the clear blue sky that group okay the people you see at a rally you know that's where i'm i'm confused there's like, two things about that there's, there's two things about that and i want to disabuse everybody of that notion and i don't mean this personally because i know you're a big fan of the show but that it's extremely it's uh-huh. extremely condescending and i'm going to explain to you why the first is rich people wealthy people are voting against their own interests by voting for Democrats. Why? Because they're voting for people to take more money away from them. So let's be really clear about this. Interest is not just financial. It's not just financial, but, and this is important, where it is, 
Democrats are the enemies of industries where, where blue-collar people work. That is just a fact. That is why they're reacting the way that they are. And so even, even if it were true that people are voting against their interests what, where it's not, Democrats are equally as culpable for doing the same thing. But it's not, I would argue, it's absolutely not. It's perfectly understandable to me that blue-collar folks don't view the Democrats as friends because they're not. Look at what happened in California. They're just not. Melissa, I appreciate your question. Yeah. I love your regular uh, your, your regular uh, attendance at the show. I'm going to keep jumping down the so queue. I offended you. Not at all. Not even a little bit. I love you, and I love having you. We have some great conversations. I appreciate Thanks. it. Cra- Thanks. You bet. Bye. Craig. Craig. How are you, sir? Good, buddy. How's Arizona? Man, I tell you what, things are heating up out here today. But that's not that's not really the reason I called in. But uh, why we're um, we having a a freakout attack right now over this um, debate? I guess PBS decided to give Hobbs a little time along with her as well. Yeah. And um, apparently the CEC canceled everything, and then Carrie Lake went on an interview and started flipping out. Um, but that's what's going on here right now. Um, but I, 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 I think I think I think that's a good development. Yeah. By the way, I think that's a good development. Don't you? I do. Podium holding one of those big giant checks for three hundred thousand uh, dollars. Just making a spectacle of herself. I, you know, I can't really. I'm just kind of following it on Twitter. Uh, yeah. So my details could be kind of vague, and I do apologize for that. No, that's okay. I want to call in to say that, Mike, your point about um, how the, the white people are acting now um, is very similar to how the black are acting. And, I'm, and I, I really appreciate um, the fact that you brought that up and you made that point. Um, it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy listening to your show. I always feel like I learn something from you. Always. Thank you so much. I mean, it's the world to me. Uh, this yeah. area, this space, it, it's a very, it, yeah, can you hear me? Hello? Yes. I'm sorry. I, 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 technical glitch about an hour in. Thank you very kindly for saying that. Race and identity are really what I'm very passionate about. I write and talk a lot about it. I'm working on a book on it right now, as you probably know. Uh, what I will say is this. Um, it, it's, it's an increasingly fraught area of discussion. It's very dangerous to talk about because it's easy to be attacked on it from one way or the other or people who disagree with you and then become ostracized. And then anybody can take one sentence that you said to pull it out of, out of context and kind of destroy your reputation even after 30 years of work in it. That's one of the things that happens to me on Twitter uh, you know, earlier today, or maybe it was yesterday. My days are running uh, together, and it's why I push back so viscerally. It's like if, you're gonna re- if you want to have a conversation with me, as you know, I try to be as engaging as I can. And I don't mean you, Craig. I mean you, anybody. But, but you've got to be honest about what we're saying here. We can't be pulling stuff out of context or jumping into conversations because it can get people into a lot of trouble when you talk about race. I think it's extremely important. And so I appreciate your very kind comments. Well, you know what? Um, I, I, I believe that you're 100% accurate. And, um, you know, it is very important that people talk about this. And it is important that, you know, people stop taking stuff out of context. It happens all the time. And not just to you, to everyone. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a good thing. 
Um, so, hey, man, I just want to say I appreciate it. And um, what's your feeling about Arizona? Has I feel better. I feel better because of the dynamics that you mentioned. I, I'm actually – I think what's happening is Hobbs figured out the, the goal is to not just ignore Carrie Lake. It's to poke, it's to poke the bear a little bit. If you poke her, she'll 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 lean into the crazy. I think they thought that she would just do that on her own, and barring any response from Hobbs, I think it made Hobbs look a little bit weaker. They had to poke her, they had to run at her, they had to go get her, and I think that that will help finish strong in Arizona. I think you guys are going to be okay. Well, that's good. Yeah, I appreciate you weighing in, brother. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Thanks. We got a new. Yeah, thank you. Anai, I hope I'm getting that right. Anai, um, go ahead. And, Hi. Hi, did I get that right? It's Anai. Anai, that's beautiful. Thank you. It's Ana Isabella. And, uh, I go by Anai in the Twitter Ana space. Isabella, beautiful. How could, what, what, <laughs> what question you. do you have? I'm so happy to talk to you. I am a huge oh, fan. Oh, thank you. I, I follow you on politicology, and I'm always looking forward to what you have to share on Twitter. Thank you. Um, I finally have some courage to talk okay. to you. But I am a Guatemala, Latina. Guatemala. Uh, uh, I immigrated to North Carolina 14 years ago. Wonderful. And what I'm going to ask, I'm going to tell you a little bit of my okay. background. Uh, so I am registered unaffiliated. Mm -hmm. I... I am uh, used to be evangelical. Mm -hmm. um, I was waiting to become a U.S. citizen and vote for the Republican mm -hmm. Party until Trump launched his campaign and attacked all Hispanics. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, well, since that, I, uh, I'm still unaffiliated. I have voted Democrat. and uh, But here in, in Greensboro, I am... Um, affiliated with some other latinos mm -hmm. and uh two weeks ago three weeks ago we met with our congresswoman um kathy manning she made a, a latino greet uh, uh -huh. so i think uh listening to your advice mike because i think that this is one of the first ones uh, this has happened and uh we are asking to have more of those meet and greets mm -hmm. But um, my question is basically about the Latino uh, polls because uh, you have mentioned before with the other colors and I have written down in a flashcard what I have noticed with the Latino vote and here in, in North Carolina is there is a difference between college educated and not college educated. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, I, and I also think that there is a lot of manipulation in the evangelical mm -hmm. church and there's a lot of misinformation and i don't know if i'm correct but i think that is what is happening that they are joining the republican party well there's no question about it that it's playing a big part but anai let me say i mean you're a fascinating case study because look every time i listen to, to or meet somebody and, and i do this in, in my regular life too if i meet somebody at the store like i i want to know certain demographic criteria because it's 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 really fascinating for me just because of the line of work that I'm into. I start to analyze who they are right away. So here's what's fascinating about you and your story is you, you're 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 from Guatemala. You're you're a migrant. You chose North Carolina. 
you're socially conservative would be my guess, but in large part because the evangelical church and you wanted to vote those values with, uh, with the Republican Party. And the part, this tension comes because you're like, wait a second, I have all these socially conservative values, but this guy and this party, they don't like, they don't like my people. They don't want me here. <laughs> and they're, they're that kind of, sense. yeah. So they're kind of saying they do or they, they don't, but, but I can feel it. Like I, I know they don't, like I've seen this before and, and no, someone's been there right? We know what they're saying. We know what that means. And since that, I have not been able to continue join a church, and I will not, because to me, it's not him; it's the yeah. people that put the power. And they're fascinating. Still, and it, 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 can I ask? So, can I ask? Is it yeah. a? Is it a? Um, is the church in Espanol? No, no, white was, church. Was a mixed, mixed, a mixed okay. Church and, and and, um, and do you have do you have other Guatemaltecas or, uh, in your community, or are you the only? Guatemalan family. I have a really good uh, uh, close group of friends over 10 uh -huh. years. We have become family. Argentina, Mexico, Venezuela, okay. Colombia, Peru. So diverse, la uh, Latinas, all Latinas, but very, very different backgrounds. But there's a commonality because you're from a different place. You probably speak a little bit in Espanol. No, when you're together, not always, but sometimes you're sharing food. You're talking about things. Yeah, we are uh, all the time speaking Spanish, okay. and mm -hmm. also um, a, a college educator, not a, mm -hmm. not college mm -hmm. educator. Um, my close group of friends, we all both. Both. Okay, that was, that's what I was uh, just going to ask. That that is mm -hmm. that is what's going to put North Carolina in play. I don't know if Renee's here in the room, my my uh, my, my North Carolinian expert. But that okay. This this so so you're 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 fascinating, kind of like M is to me too. Especially people in the evangelical community. Let me say this: I think it's uh, you have a fascinating story, and your story is what is is literally going to determine who is going to be the party that will dominate American politics over the next ten fifteen years. For right now, what you're saying is. As much as I'm socially conservative, as much as I found a home in the church, as much as I'm an evangelical, I can't put up with the racism that I see in the party and these people that don't want me, not just Trump, but the people that are attracted to him. So I'm going to be, I'm a Democrat. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be voting Democrat yeah. still unaffiliated until, I don't know, maybe a compassionate Liz Cheney mm -hmm. comes. Yep. Yeah. Because those, val those values are still there, no? Yeah, yes. but but you also know who doesn't want you here, basically, <laughs> and you're, oh, and yeah. so so that comes yeah. first. Now this is really, I hope everybody's listening to this. Is really it makes all of the points in, in in three minutes better than I could have. This is a, this is literally identity. This is who I am, and that is such a primal uh, determiner of how you are taking action that it can override even religious belief. Right. And this, this, yes. this, they are, go ahead. They are not following what we believe, what the Bible. Exactly. Talks. Yeah. They're being hypocrites. That's why I am. I cannot put up uh, my foot in a church. Good for again. you. Can't do it. Um, this, yeah. So this, and again, I love that you're in North Carolina too. I think that that's fascinating because 
the Latino community is very new there, right? The people that you're seeing there are all coming from different industries, some college, some not college, some church, some not church. You're all Latinos, Latinas, but you're all very, very different parts of the Latin American world. But your commonality is Espanol. There's some, you know, I bet the music's great. and I bet the laughing is loud. Uh, but I also think that this is what this type of change is what makes a lot of the other people in your community nervous, because I guarantee you a lot of white evangelicals in North Carolina are probably very anti-immigrants generally. Right. And buy into this idea that immigration is just a bad thing, because if it's not a white Christian nation, it's not really America. Yeah. Right. But the thing is that they show you one face, yeah. I think your face super friendly. Yes, we love you, but then they vote differently. So Andale. exactly. I'm sorry, but I took even though I'm I came here legally, mm -hmm. if you want to say it because that's uh -huh. the term, it got really offended when Trump started to say all Good that. Good for you. Because he was my people. So, Good for you. Um, Good for you. Proud of you. And uh, yeah, I'm excited by got worse. I thought we were going to have a relief after he lost and no, it's getting worse. And also another thing is going to make a huge difference, I believe in the Latino vote, is the, the, what you mentioned about generations. Because my daughters are here um, one came here uh, turned two years old mm -hmm. here and turned six. So they are more liberal than mm -hmm. I, than I am. And that's that's so, that's typical. That's what I was just explaining, right? So yeah, that's, that's Anaí, Ana Isabela, muchas gracias. Th thank you for making the case for me so much better than I could have. Your experience, your trajectory is what I was trying to explain to the audience. I'm so glad that you're beginning to 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 behave a lot like their peers of all other races and ethnicities as second generation, right? Like this is the typical path that we're looking for. And so as somebody who does this for a living, it's great to have a validator to kind of jump on and say what Mike is saying is right. I mean, of course, I like to be right. I mean, not always right, but, but you're exactly what I'm saying is happening in the Latino community right now. And I'm so grateful that you're a follower and for your kindness and for joining the show. I hope you'll keep uh, following us on this journey because your, your perspective is so important. Oh, I will. I'm super passionate about this. And um, just one yeah. more thing. I just wish that the polls will will be able to break down more about the Latino yeah. vote. Like the of you saw the article today. Yes. They break down a lot about um, the Hispanic male, female, the uh, religion, and foreign born versus um, U.S. born. Uh, so I think it be more polls with this type of breakdowns to understand the Latino. I'm polls. so glad you. I'm so glad um, you said that too, because that's a big part of what I think the polling agencies are going to start focusing on after the midterms, because we're just we're everywhere, right? You're calling from North Carolina, that was unheard of ten years ago. Now it's so important to get this data right that they can't just use uh, oversamples as we call them. They've got to get this stuff right, and I think going forward we're going to start seeing some really really cool stuff coming out. A lot of what you, you intuitively know and you just explained, but uh, I, I, I hope it will get better. I'm pretty confident that it will. It's about time. As somebody who's been looking at this for 30 years, it's like the, the world is finally paying attention. So it's a very exciting time for, for me. Good. Thank you. Muchas gracias, Anaí. De nada. Hasta la Hasta próxima. Hasta la próxima vez. Okay. 
that was a great call. Uh, Austin, my pollster, my pollster in residence. <laughs> How are you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm doing well today. Um, during this conversation, something um, g g got my gears moving my head. Um, it's actually about um, policy in terms of um, the middle class when it goes back to um, California, mm -hmm. um, where the Democratic Party uh, seems to uh, be... Uh, perceived as an enemy to, you know, manufacturing, uh, natural gas, and these other um, sectors. Um, I feel like um, President Biden is trying to rectify that. Mm -hmm. And I know Tim Ryan and his campaign is making manufacturing, you know, a very big deal. Mm -hmm. um, on the policy side, are any of those things um, going to start to change that perception? Yeah. Or is it too big? No, then? no, no. It's a, no, no. It's a great question, and I think it's right. And a lot of people have rightfully said, Mike, well, what do you think Build Back Better is? What do you think the infrastructure bill was? What do you think about the transportation? Like, those are construction jobs. And that's absolutely right. That's 100% right. There's two things about that that I want to qualify, though. The first is... You know, these are 10-year, 15-year, 20-year appropriations. Like, that's not something that, that the average working man is going to be like, okay, yeah, you know, the Democrats are, are for the working man. And unfortunately, by the time it gets done and implemented, no one's going to say, well, this is the Democrats that did this. Um, it, it's a net positive, though. It, it's it's had, definitely heading in, in, in the right direction. Uh, that's, the, the, that's the main takeaway. The, the second, though, and this is the bigger problem, is blue collar? There's a blue collar culture in America that's very important. Uh, it's gotten a little bit out of um, sorts in the Trump era, but but the the middle class, which is almost overwhelmingly throughout our history, for the entirety of our history, not overwhelming for the entirety of our history, the blue the blue collar middle class voter is is America. Sixty percent of voters. 60% don't have a college degree. Not all of them are poor, right? There, there's a reason why Tim Ryan is talking about manufacturing in Ohio and the elites in the Democratic Party go, oh, yeah, he's talking to, to working class whites. Well, how come they're not doing that in California? And my answer is because the working class in California is brown and Democrats treat non-white people very differently than white people, very differently. They believe, and you hear a lot of it on this call, they believe that non-white people are focused almost entirely and or exclusively on oppression issues. It's why the media narrative is always about, when you're talking about Latinos, it's always about border issues. It's always about the undocumented. It's all about building a wall. And I see this. If, if you don't believe me, look at the look at the comments on my Twitter feed when I'll say something about Latinos moving towards the Republican Party. Nine times out of ten, the response comes saying, "I don't know how Hispanics can vote for somebody who's putting their people and their kids in cages." And it's like that—that's a stereotypical view of who Latinos are. And non-white people or white people have a very 
It's what I said at the very beginning. It's the whole purpose of this talk today. White people, progressives especially, by the way, have a very stereotypical view of the way that people of color should be behaving and what they should be focusing on. I'm going to say it just like that because it's true. I've been dealing with it for 30 years. It doesn't mean they're bad people. I think they're well-intentioned. But just because I'm Latino doesn't mean that my top issue is border, are border issues. And, and yeah, I think that putting kids in cages is absolutely horrible. But I think it's as horrible as you or anybody else. Right? I want to talk about the issue set that affects me and my family directly. I may not, because I'm a blue-collar worker, have the benefit of voting on these cultural issues as a luxury because I don't work for Apple. I don't work for entertainment companies. I don't work in biotech. I don't, work on the, I don't live on the west side. Like, I live on the east side. I live on the south side. I work in the factory. I work in the energy patch. I build houses for a living. I lay plumbing. I run electric wire. Like, that's, that's my life. That's what I do. And the industries that support me and support what I do are Republicans. And those that are trying to put me out of business or put my employer out of business are Democrats. That's the perception. And that's, not, that's, that's backed up by hard data. I mean, that's why this is happening, right? And so it's not just an image problem. It's not a perception problem. It's a true policy problem. The Democratic Party really is not the party of the working man anymore. That's what Tim Ryan says. Not Mike Madrid. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Tim Ryan. He says it, and he's right. So until there are policies that promote industries, and, and I'll say it again too, don't give me this green job stuff because it's, it's a lie. It's offensive. There's no such thing, Okay. Until you start as a party, the Democrats start as a party building a true working class agenda, they're going to keep losing to the Republicans. And that they can't figure it out because they're like, well, you're not white, so you must be like worried about oppression. You're worried about immigration raids. You're worried about you know the border. You're worried about being a farm worker. It's like, no. You're talking to like 2% of us, and you don't even realize it. And man, that's the problem. Okay? Yeah, so uh, for, yeah, if I, what I've learned about um, politics, you know, my political science courses, generally, um, good policy will transcend demographic lines and you know the democrats just you know put up good policy and enact good policy that's um you know popular with manufacturing they're gonna not only they should not only see net positive with white voters but they should see it net positive amongst voters of color as well yeah yeah i think well there's no question that's a great start there's no question now, now, there's also, like I said, there's also this issue of, of the culture wars, which Republicans, as blue-collar you know, people, kind of, they're a little bit scrappier, and they understand these issues a little bit you know, better. They understand how to speak to that demographic more. And again, when 60% of the electorate is non-college educated, if you can speak to that, 
Um, it, it's not like, like, like we, we say all the time in Republican politics. The Democrats bring a policy handbook to a street fight. Like uh, Democrats really believe that, that campaigns are about having better policy. I, I hate to disabuse you all of the notion. That's not what campaigns are about. That's not what winning campaigns are about. Like Democrats always want to give you a 20-point plan on how they're going to solve your problems. And we're just like, whenever that happens, we just kind of laugh because it's not, that's not the way blue-collar people think. Blue-collar people do not look to government to solve their problems. And that's why, like, when Joe Biden's passed all this amazing stuff, I'm not saying it's not good stuff. A lot of it, I think, is fantastic stuff. But to think that you're going to be able to sell people or move people on the Build Back Better plan or the infrastructure plan, that's crazy talk. Like, that, that is not how campaigns work. That, 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 that nobody is looking... Nobody in the blue-collar world is looking to Joe Biden going, boy, I need to call my senator and have them vote for that Build Back Better plan because that's what's going to save my job. Like, that, that, that voter doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. What do we talk to him about? We talk to him about immigration. We talk to him about abortion. We talk to him about all these hot-button emotional issues that the polling tells us is at the top of the ticket for them. That's at the top of the issue set. That's where we fight those fights, and that's why Republicans – win all these fights that we shouldn't be winning, by the way. It's because when Democrats want to talk policy, man, that, that's, that's where Democrats go to die. Like, you're going you're gonna to lose that fight eight times out of ten. They're getting better at it. On the abortion issue, for example, I mean, that's a cultural issue where Democrats are going to you know, win. I don't know if it's going to be enough to, to, to have them win, keep the House in the midterms, but that's a, that's a winning issue now that it's gone. So there are there are and as as the Republican Party becomes more culturally extreme, the Democrats can come back and win on some of these issues, but but they shouldn't be. In, look, a, a healthy political party does not rely on the mistakes of the other party to win. You have to develop an agenda to actually be who you are. The Democratic Party was the working man's party when my father joined it. It is no longer the working man's party. It's the party for the college-educated, especially whites. All right? Austin, I hope that was helpful. Yeah, that was um, uh, good. Um, I do want to talk about um, Utah um, Senate one of these days, uh, but I'm not sure today is the yeah, best, no, let's. Uh, right yeah, yeah, I haven't talked to Evan. Let's do this. Let's talk next Wednesday. I'll bring that up. I'm going to give Evan McMullen a call, get a sense of the race, and give you guys some insight on what's happening with Mike Lee and Evan. Evan's numbers keep looking really, really good. Um, Mike Lee sounds desperate, but I don't know if it's like a Lindsey Grand desperate, you know, and their internals are really looking better, and he's just trying to raise money. Let me poke around this week, make some phone calls to folks in Utah, and uh, and we'll, let, we'll add that to the agenda for next week. On my drop. How's that? That sounds great. Um, and I would also put Marco Rubio in that same camp of um, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, I think Marco's going to win, but but I'll I'll poke around there too. I'll do I'll do I'll do my homework, and we'll look at some of the races I haven't. Okay, we'll do that next week. Thanks, Perfect. Austin. Appreciate you joining. Yep, you bet. Amy, you're up. You're on cue. 
Go ahead and unmute and ask away. Thanks, Mike. Um, to change subject a little bit, um, I've been reading, well, you've been harping on what the earthquake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how it will impact uh, the elections. But I've been reading lately that um, it maybe is not going to impact it so much as the economy, right? Inflation mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, of course, certainly the recent OPEC decision to uh, st uh, decrease production, which will hit probably our, our gas pumps uh, right around election time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in the, in the words of uh, the famous words of Carville, you know, it's the economy stupid, which I think is going to in increase by election time. And so just... Roe v. Wade versus economy, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I've, I mean, I've said this a lot, and I'm, I'm going to keep saying it again. Can I'm you hear me now? A little... Yes, Hello? now, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had an. I'm a much. I'm a much bigger believer in in following fundamentals, in data than I am chasing all of what I call the noise that comes in to every campaign. There's always an explosion that comes in, like a Herschel Walker, you know, a, a October surprise, or Fetterman has a stroke. What does that mean? Or or what's happening with the Hispanic vote in Nevada? Right, like. The key to being a successful political consultant is to understand the fundamentals and focus on the fundamentals and know what those fundamental pieces are and then calibrate how big or how small the external data or the noise is, okay? So what does that mean? I have always said on this show and for the past couple of years, you have to, you have to look at the historical trend line. It benefits the Republicans. You have to look at the economy in the right track, wrong direction. That benefits the Republicans. The party out of power, the fundamentals have the Republicans in a better position. I just don't think there's any way around that. You can look at Biden's approval ratings coming back and the generic ballot coming back. And those are data points that are fundamentals that have moved in a Democratic position. So there's a couple of really good arguments for the Republicans. There's a couple increasingly good arguments for the Democrats. I have suggested, again on this show, that one of the fundamentals that people do not look at is the data point of which party is the most extreme, which I think is probably the most significant indicator. It's one that is the least watched. And I will tell you that the Republican Party, by a pretty considerable measurable measure, is viewed as the more extreme. That benefits Democrats. So I, the way I look at the fundamentals, there were really three things benefiting Democrats. And you're seeing this happening with the surge in the polls for the Democrats in Georgia. You're seeing, you're seeing Warnock starting to peak right now. That's good news. You are seeing Democrats moving in Arizona in a way that we saw Kelly and Hobbs a little bit stuck more Hobbs than Kelly. Masters, in a lot of polling, is way down. I think that's good news if you're a Democrat. There's some bad news on the horizon. Nevada is moving red. Those numbers are tightening. Uh, 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 Cortez Masto 
actually pulled ahead by one point. So she's seeing a little bit of that Dem surge. But that's a t much tighter race in a much tighter frame than I would be comfortable if I was heading up the Democratic Senatorial Committee. Fetterman's in trouble now, okay? People may not want to hear this, but that's kind of what I do on the show. The stroke is having an effect, and there's no reason to not address it and quit saying that it's not happening. It's bothering people. It's a legitimate and fair concern. He is not healthy. You can't say Herschel Walker's mental illness is an issue, but John Fetterman's stroke is not. Both parties are going to be hypocrites, partisans on both sides. Those few deciding, undecided voters are looking at both of these. In Georgia, they are increasingly deciding that Walker is not fit and Warnock's numbers are moving up. In Pennsylvania, they're increasingly saying that they're concerned and Oz is moving into striking position, in many cases within the margin of error. Okay? Now, you're seeing a Republican a rise, a strong one with, Ross, with Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. Mandela Barnes, I, I think it's probably almost time to call that race. The fundamentals in Wisconsin are not good for Mandela Barnes. He's not going to... Johnson was weak, I think, with a different candidate. Probably could have done him in. I don't think that the Democrat gets there. I think you may even see a shift of resources from Democrats pulling out, leaving Mandela on his own, and trying to go save Georgia or pick up... Uh, or I'm sorry, save Georgia or save Nevada. I think that's actually a good move, uh, or, 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 um, or Arizona even, and just build your wall and protect as many of those seats as you possibly can. Um, Pennsylvania is the, 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 the pickup that the Democrats really need. Fetterman's health, you know, it, it, it's an issue. So th there is data, and again, I was talking with Zach Chikowski this morning, my political director from the Lincoln Project. He's seeing a lot of the same things I am. There's divergent. There are Republican surgings in some states. There are Democrats surging in other states. The data is really conflicted this time in a way that I have never seen it in my adult life. When that happens, when that happens, as I advised him as a younger guy in the business, and who's advising his clients, he said, "Mike, I don't know what to say here," and I have said, "I don't know exactly what's going on either." So my advice is always going to be this, and remember this, young Padawan: if it comes down to moving data which I look for movement, as you know, or the fundamentals, go with the fundamentals. Go with the fundamentals. In Pennsylvania, that tells me the Democrat will win. Okay? Oh. okay. In, Ohio, in Ohio, that tells me the Republican's going to win. In Nevada, in, in Arizona, that tells me that the Democrat's going to win. In Georgia, that tells me the Democrat's going to win. In Wisconsin, that tells me the Republican's going to win. And Nevada, Nevada, I think, is truly a, truly a horse race. The trend line, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I, do, I don't think the Democrats have done enough in that Senate seat to be in a position where they want to and should be and should have known better to be. It was always going to be extraordinarily tight. But there were a lot of things that could have been done differently to bring this race home. Incidentally, that tells me in Texas that um, Abbott wins. It tells me that, um, um, uh, what's the other one I was going to bring? Oh, Florida. Florida, I think Rubio wins. Yeah. Right. And North Carolina, like, again, North Carolina keeps doing what North Carolina does, right? It's just, I keep selling, the data keeps saying the Democrat's going to win. The fundamentals in that state, the outcomes of, in that state point to a Republican by two or three 
we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I hope yeah. that was helpful. It was very helpful. And Renee is in the, in the queue and I always like to hear her stuff. So <laughs> okay. Let's right. take, thanks. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to take Renee's question and then we're going to be done because my voice is shot. And perhaps most importantly, one of my few guilty pleasures is baseball. I have listened to this guys. I like, I'm a baseball, baseball freak. I mean, there are a lot of years where I watch all 162 Dodger games because the Dodgers are the best team in baseball, regardless of the year. But the Do- yeah. Sorry. Uh, probably lost a lot of fans there, but I will say this. Like I haven't watched a single ball game this year. I've got to watch a lot of the highlights. Uh, we're in the middle of the Dodger game. They're doing really good against the Padres. Uh, most importantly, my voice is giving out, but I want to take Renee too. give us that North Carolina. You've had North Carolina come at you from a couple of angles. Go ahead and uh, share some of that North Carolina wisdom with us. Let me know what else you're thinking. What else are you hearing out there? Oh God, I don't, I don't have any wisdom on North Carolina to share with you tonight. Cause it's, I mean, you, I, you, the vibe is still the vibe here. You know what I'm saying? It, it's kind of like from one day to the next, you're not really sure how things are going to feel when you're out and about. Um, whether you're canvassing or making calls or texting or what have you, it just depends on the day. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're in that hold pattern that we're in every single election cycle for real. Um, I did want to ask you though, about, um, the, uh, Democrats pulling their money out of those orange County races. Um, and what is going on with that? Are they confident wow. in those races and, and putting that money elsewhere? Are they writing them off? What's going on? Yeah, uh, let me let me explain what happened is I think you're talking about the tweet I put out that said that the uh, House Majority Pack pulled about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of reserved time out of the Los Angeles media market. And then I what I said was this is the most inefficient way to spend money, but but we can't read too much into it. And I'm going to explain why this is a little bit nerdy. This is a little bit, you know, geeky, but that's why you guys, I think, like the show, right? This is like the, the show for, for really deep political data nerds. So let me explain what happened. The short answer is, though, I don't think we should read too much into it. I had a reporter actually DM me right after that and saying, what, is, what does this mean? Does this give us an indicator? My response was, no, it doesn't, but it is something to watch. So, so here's what that means. The second most expensive media market in America is the Los Angeles media market. The, the most expensive is the New York-Philadelphia market, okay? The second is, in California, it's Los Angeles, and it's enormous. Geographically, it encompasses all of L.A. County, all of Orange County, and all of Riverside County, and up into my, that big. Now, it's also extremely, extremely, extremely inefficient. And what do I mean by that? When you're looking for what I call the efficiency of the spend, which is what I teach all my, my young guys when we're doing campaigns, is always focus on the efficiency of the spend, which means how do I get to the most highest impact persuadable voter that I need for the least amount of money, right? That's what you always need to be. Is it online? Is it in mail? Is it on digital? Is it, is it TV? Is it radio? Is it cable? Is it buying Spotify? Like, what is it? That's how you build the campaign. The least efficient... The least efficient is broadcast, and it's the most expensive, which makes it the least efficient. There's a lot of what we call fat. There's a f- lot of fat in broadcast. And what, I, what do I mean by that? Okay. 
Okay, we're going to do a little master class here. So sit down and if you're interested in this because this is really, really good stuff. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. When you buy TV, broadcast, not cable, broadcast TV, it has an extremely wide net. Millions of people are going to watch it. But if I'm trying to target one congressional seat in Orange County, and not only am I trying to target one seat in Orange County, but I just need, let's say hypothetically, a sliver of Republicans, right? Let's say I'm targeting my Bannon line, guys. So I'm trying to get 5% of Republicans in one congressional district, okay? I'm talking about, let's say generously, 20,000 voters, okay? And so I need to talk to those 20,000 voters on broadcast TV while I'm competing with them watching Netflix or they're at the Dodger game tonight or they're listening to radio instead or they're reading a book. Like, let's say, let's say generously half of that are going to be watching the broadcast that I buy. Now we're down to 10,000 people. Okay, and then on broadcast, you have to buy it enough to have them watch it three or four times, a commercial three or four times. Seeing a commercial one time does not change behavior. You got to see it three or four times. Okay, so I need 10,000 people to watch a commercial three or four times, and I'm buying in the most expensive media market where literally 30 million people, 30 million people are going to be seeing this. I'm sorry, that's not accurate. Let's say it's about 5 million people. There's 35 million people in all of California. A third of that market, yeah, so let's say there's about 8-9-10 million people. Let's say it's 8 million. Talking to is 10,000 people. That's incredibly wasteful, <laughs> okay? Does that make sense? Yeah, so that basically... waste, those 7,999,999% of the people that I'm paying these expensive rates for can't see the district, can't vote in that district. The reason why the parties and both parties do this reserve that time is because if it gets that close, you may not have a choice. If you're trying to save that seat, you're trying to throw everything you have at it, and you will pay whatever it takes to get your message however inefficiently you can in front of however many voters you need to get in front of. Does that make sense? Yeah. So is you that what you guys did in Georgia in 2020? No, is in Georgia. In that area? No, no. Great question. No. In DeKalb and Gwinnett, we were going in with on digital we went in on digital because i knew what messages were going to work very very specifically and very very efficiently one of the benefits i had on the lincoln project was i knew precisely who my demographic was and i didn't need to put this stuff on either broadcast or cable because they were not efficient that's a great question well, I asked that, and here's my follow-up, is yeah. I, I've seen criticism of Sherry Beasley because you're not seeing a lot of her ads on broadcast TV. However, you are seeing them in a lot of streaming services. Yeah. So my guess is that they're, they're targeting demographics that way. Is that that's not exactly right? exactly right. That, that's exactly right, and that's exactly what the campaign should be doing. That's exactly right. And the smart campaign 
is being efficient with their spend. So if you're not seeing, Craig asked this question in Arizona, I'm not seeing Hobbs, I'm not seeing Hobbs, right, in Arizona. Now, he's talking about earned media. What you're saying about Beasley is no one's seeing her on broadcast because that's inefficient money. Don't buy broadcast. You don't need broadcast. If you're doing, you're targeting really, really good, and it sounds like that's what they're doing. I would rather have, you know, $1 of really good targeted media as opposed to $10 with a fat buy because that fat is worthless to me. So I'm sorry, if, I'm sorry if we got way too in the weeds here, guys, but this is, this is literally the way campaigns think. This is, no, these I are, love it. Yeah, these are the decisions that we have to make. And so when I talked to you about L.A. and that tweet I put out, that is the most inefficient money in America unless you're trying to buy, you know, something in, in Manhattan for a, a congressional candidate, right? It's, it's literally the worst money you can buy. So it's not a bad thing. It's not a sign of anything significant other than the Democrats probably have a better way of spending that $450,000 in reserved time in the district. You can't read anything other than they are shifting their strategy. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. I don't know if it's because they're 10 points up. I don't know if it's because they're 10 points down. All I know is something changed and they're no longer using that medium to, to have to go in with that fat of a buy. Again, way more in the weeds than most people. And I hope I didn't lose a whole lot of people here. I, I know that was very abstract and very kind of esoteric, but that's, that's the, the, quest, the reason why I like your question is it allows me to explain as a practitioner what happened there in a way that you're only going to hear uh, on mic drop because I'm a practitioner. So this is what we do. All right. Well, I really appreciate it, Mike. And also, I'm a huge baseball fan as well. I've been studying the game since I was nine years old. <laughs> My team is out of it, so but you do have a couple former UEA players on your team, and you uh -huh. have Mookie Betts. So go, go Mookie Dodgers. Betts. Go Dodgers this year. Got to love that. And again, the best data people in the business are baseball people. They're not political people. Oh, I uh, love it. Yeah, the data scientists and the way the game has changed is something I'm just fascinated by. So, guys, we've gone on a really long time. I promised myself this would be short, but we've had a great group here, great questions, held our audience. Uh, thank you so much for those questions, and thank you for um, for putting up with me on the on the on the on the weird race stuff. It's it's what I love. It's what I love to watch. Uh, I'll be writing a book on it. I'll be talking a lot more about that later. I hope you found it interesting, especially in the context of the way this all plays out in actual campaigns. But I'm also glad we've got some really good campaign questions in there too four we're getting down to it with three weeks thank you for joining this episode of mic drop and we'll talk to you same time same place next week